have a career that spans 30 years with the United Nations. You have, after all, worked for under the leadership of four secretary generals, if I understand, right? It's five, isn't it? I began under Perez Okoye, Butros Ghali, Kofi Annan, Ban Ki-moon, and then Antonio Guterres. Yeah, no, five. What was it like working for the UN for this 30 years? I, I, um, well, I started at the end. I was Assistant Secretary General for Human Rights at UN headquarters in New York. And prior to that, I was the political director in the office of the Secretary General for a few years. And then prior to that, a lot of time in the field. Um, I began in Afghanistan in, back in 1989 and South Sudan, Iraq, Gaza, uh, elsewhere in the Middle East, uh, the Balkans, and, and elsewhere. So a lot of field work during that time. So well. you were one of those rare figures in the United Nations that have been able to uh, be uh, working in headquarters and in the field as well. What so would you would say in the last decade was, um, what were the challenges that the UN faced in terms of human rights? And what was the context too in terms of P5, uh, the Security Council? Uh, how did, did they see the issue of human rights? The last 10 years have clearly not been good for human rights, whether at the United Nations or elsewhere. There was, at the time I began 30 years ago, the world was very much, it was just before, actually I joined the week the Berlin Wall came down, which of course marked a major milestone in the end of the Cold War. And after that, there was a, a great relaxation in, in many parts of the world from, from either right-wing regimes or extreme left-wing re regimes. And definitely there was progress. And I would say, and it had begun even before the end of the Cold War, perhaps in the late 70s, and it lasted until approximately 2010. And I can't really put a single cause on it, let alone a single date, but it, it, it's connected, I think, to the austerity programs that followed the the financial crisis of 2008. It's linked to the uh, very misguided great war against terror and that itself, it was, which was of course a response to massive human rights violations carried out by terrorist groups, but then in the course of which major human rights violations were also carried out. And then of course, in reaction to that great war against terror by some countries of the West, there was the rise of organizations such as the Islamic State, which led to just almost unfathomable violations. But all of these things connected as well as with a rise in migration, partly, by the way, provoked by declining human rights in the countries of origin. And whether we're talking about the rise of poverty or just direct government human rights violations or conflict, uh, which always has human rights violations attached to conflict, they, people fled. And then the response, both in the United States and in Europe, was not exactly very generous. And I think a number of countries who had been lectured by Western countries for the last 20 or 30 years um, and had been rather resentful about these lectures, then suddenly saw that these great standards of the West that had been proclaimed were a little bit hollow. So all of these things led to a decline of human rights. And the Trump administration, let us make no bones about it, was very, very bad on a whole range of human rights issues, which had a knock-on effects well beyond the United States, of course, 
because it, it emboldened human rights violators around the world. They knew that the United States would not object to however bad the violations were unless the country concerned was an enemy, inverted commas, of the United States for some other reason, and then they would be high and mighty about human rights violations. But if it was anybody who was can be considered an ally of the, United, of the United States, then there was utter silence, whether it's Israel or Saudi Arabia or Egypt or, or many other countries, and including Latin America, but Brazil would be an example of that. So there, there has been a pushback in the United Nations and what that and elsewhere against human rights. And what that meant was that those voices in the UN who wanted to speak out against human rights violations found it much, much harder to do so, as the with the United States no longer being a supporter of that, but actually an opponent. And that, as well as the fact that people like China then realized that they could, uh, with perhaps even greater impunity than before, carry out really major oppression and not really have to pay any price at the UN. So we've seen many, many... And also in Brazil. Yeah, it also in Latin America, in Brazil, no, we've seen with the rise of Bolsonaro to government that was also, you know, emboldened by uh, Mr. Trump. Categorically, yes, absolutely. You see, now we have been quite optimistic in the West in terms of what's happening now that the Democratic elect the president is in charge now. So we see that there is the, the, the Secretary of State, uh, Blinken, already has made the movements towards asserting, again, America's uh, position in terms of leadership, of getting at the head of the table again. Uh, so what you see is, because you have worked also throughout these various transitions, Republicans, Democrats, what does change? And are we right to be optimistic? Yes, we are right to be optimistic. I'd say a little bit guardedly so, but let, let, if I could just look at a couple of examples. The Trump victory four years ago, it was quite extraordinary how in private the world leaders who themselves had dodgy human rights records were delighted by Trump's victory. They had been obviously lectured by people during the Obama administration and they and various conditions were attached and they really rubbed their hands with glee. And I, I can tell you this for absolute certainty. Not only did I hear it, but a number of my colleagues also heard it, including my, those who were more senior than I did and therefore heard it at a higher level. So just to take the Middle East alone, whether, I mean, the one thing that united human rights abusers, whether they were... Turkey, the Saudi Arabians, the Egyptians, the Israelis, the uh, Emiratis, I mean, and I've missed out a number as well. They were all happy that Trump was coming because they all perceived, and it turned out quite rightly, that the United States was really not going to create a problem about however bad their human rights violations were. So that, the fact that a number of people who were in the Obama administration and now high level in the Biden administration and have already come out, and you just mentioned Tony Blinken, and clearly he is a prime example of this, who have already made it very clear that the policies of the, of the last four years are, are no longer going to apply. And therefore, there will be human rights standards now in line with American values. And that is very, very encouraging. And this is a hearkening back to the Obama era. But it, I think 
when it comes to the UN, and and it's not just human rights, but it's just general support for multilateralism and the UN as an organization. It's not just a matter of Republicans versus Democrats. I would, and I, and I would caution that, it depends which Democrats and it depends which Republicans, obviously. By and large, as a general rule, if you look back over the 75 years of the UN, um, by and large, you would find that there was a more friendly attitude towards the UN and the Democrats, but that's not always the case. The Eisenhower administration was very clo closely aligned with the Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld uh, when the British, French, and Israelis made their terribly ill-conceived and immoral action on Suez. And there you find the United States and the UN in alignment against allies of the US. But, and um, similarly, the first George Bush administration was also, which is, um, which is when I joined the UN actually, uh, one felt always that the US administration was pretty supportive of the UN, which didn't apply, by the way, under the eight years of the Clinton administration. Uh, I would say that at no time really did I ever feel under the Clinton administration that here are people really supporting the UN. I didn't feel that. I did under Obama. What is the Berghoff Foundation now focusing on? I know you're celebrating your 50th anniversary this year. And what are some of the uh, programs that you have in mind? What is the scope of action? Well, as you kindly pointed out, we are 50 years old, the Berghoff Foundation. I, I joined it only eight months ago. And it, it, is, um, it is, is a variety of activities. One, um, support for particular peace processes around the world. Secondly, it's about research to do with conflict. And thirdly, it's about peace education. And we're, we are merging those all together so that they are complementary. And actually, a number of organizations do both the research or the think tank part and the operational. But I think no other organization does all three activities that we do, which research, operational, and the peace education. What we are doing, we are very active in places like Yemen, Afghanistan, Somalia, and uh, the Caucasus, actually, and uh, many other countries as well. What we, and we do both sort of mediation at the, the higher level, what's called track 1.5, rather confusingly, but, but nevertheless, that, that's what it is. It's sort of semi-official negotiations. Sometimes it's even track one, as we are involved very which much. Is, which is the area you are um, actually in uh, experience, because you have worked with the United Nations precisely on those areas of mediation. Uh, absolutely. Uh, in all over the world, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Palestine, Israel, in the Balkans, and South Sudan. You know, I agree. It's, I, indeed. But we, um, so what just to, we are, um, but we, we deal with high level negotiations, but also we deal with more grassroots, community based reconciliation and dialogue. So there's a lot of promotion of that in places like Somalia and in the Caucasus as well. The, the, the area that I most want to focus on that is new for Berkhoff is the very clear link in my mind and a number of other people's minds, but perhaps is not that well established elsewhere, is the link between conflict and climate change. And this is, um, this is, a, this is a gradual recognition of this. I remember one of my bosses, Ban Ki-moon, back in 2007, uh, said that there was a cause between the term genocide in Sudan, um, in Darfur. And he pointed out that there was a link in this to 
climate change. And I remember the reaction to that was terrible. People really, really attacked him as if he was somehow an apologist for the Khartoum regime or the, or the, uh, the Janjaweed. Um, but it, it is true. Drought and other forms of climate change exacerbate conflict all over the world. And, um, but, and I think more people now recognize that. And you can see in the Lake Chad Basin, the rise of Boko Haram is clearly linked to the appalling climatic conditions in many parts of the Sahel. Further east, you have Al-Shabaab in Somalia. You have uh, Al-Qaeda and others in Yemen. You have the Islamic State. Now, I was based in Iraq during the terrible drought of 2007 uh, to 2010. And one could actually see the radicalization that was coming there and also subsequently in Syria and the rise of the Islamic State. It wasn't just that. It was also the very short-sighted policies by the governments in both Damascus and Baghdad and the and a reaction to the US-led invasion. But I, that, so in, in, in those, those sort of four areas that I just mentioned, I think it's no coincidence that the most violent radical extremist groups are in areas where there's been the most dramatic manifestations of climate change and particularly and global heating and drought and, and occasionally flash floods as well. So this link is something that I, I think that peace builders need to be more aware of. And we're going to be working very hard. We actually have our first event just next week, um, focusing on three specific countries, um, Afghanistan, Syria, and Ethiopia, where there, there has been and there will be projected further manifestations of climate change. And we want to see um, what the peace building and the peace making community can do to to help. Yes, the connection between extreme weather events has, has been clearly established in the last decade or so. Right. The Berghoff Foundation has worked in Latin America. Anything that you have planned or have worked with recently that you can speak about now? Tell, tell us a bit about. Yes, uh, and. There is a, I mean, for example, actually, I think it was my last trip almost um, at the UN, um, late 2019, was the, the pre-COP meeting in Costa Rica. And there I, I went and, and I spoke to delegations, particularly of, of youth, actually, on, from a number of Latin American countries. And I asked them all the same question and I got with the same answer. I said, what is it you most, what does youth need most? And they all said, We need climate change education and we need human rights education. And this is something that I really, really feel that there needs to be much closer link between the climate change community and the human rights community. And that is something that I'm going to be doing, um, not just at Berkhoff, but as a fellowship at Oxford that I'm starting um, in, March, in you know, April, and is to try to foster greater links because Often, the climate change community and the human rights communities, are, I mean, are, so operate in entirely separate spheres, and we need to change that. And not only, I mean, we, we've discussed, you mentioned Bolsonaro, and I mentioned Trump. They, those are two classic examples of people who are climate change deniers, and people who are completely ready to despoliate the environment, and, uh, and allow mining, deforestation, and utter destruction of, of nature. And biodiversity, but and they are also people utterly contemptuous of human rights. So, apart from anything else, it's the enemies of the environment and of human rights are the same people. But then also the the core, there is so much in common, and that that is what we need to get them working together because 
I think they will both be more effective if they work in alliance more. And in terms of programs, I've seen the document you have sent me that they're looking forward. Digital communications will be very important, right? How do you see that? Because also I'd like to have you make a little bit of a retrospective of what has changed in terms of the impact of digital communications and news, using you know devices and services. Uh, it, how has, has it impacted uh, human rights uh, work uh, throughout the world? What do you see has happening, happened in the last 20 years or so, which became more preeminent, the use of digital technologies, also the impact it had, for instance, in the displacement displacement of the Rohingya, uh, that Facebook served as the platform to disseminate this hatred and xenophobia. Um, can you make a little bit of what happened in the last 20 years and what is planned in terms of you know, addressing issues of digital communications and using digital communications to better the situation in terms of human rights and peace education? Well, yes. Technological advances, very obvious point, but they, they have both good, a good impact and a bad impact. And for the global struggle for human rights, they, they come into both categories as well. And if we just look at a couple of them, mm-hmm. some good one. I mean, I have to say that I, I thought wrongly, as it turned out, that the fact that it was now so easy to upload evidence, absolute clear-cut evidence of human rights violations, uh, whether we're talking about the Rohingya, whether we're talking about the United States police, whether you're talking about um, other any people, the Chinese, uh, the Israelis, anybody who brutally repress people or, or shoot them and beat them, you, you would, and in Syria, perhaps most of all, most of all, and at the beginning of the Arab Spring, when it, when one saw so much uploading of videos that it showed explicit violations. Um, I, I thought that this would, this would shame the violators, the fact that they were caught red-handed, as it were. But we see that many of them are pretty unshameable. And we see this in Belarus as well, and now in Russia at the moment. And I mean, a number of very, very major countries. And we certainly saw it last year in the United States uh, against Black Lives Matter. I mean, it was a Black Lives Matter protested against police brutality, and the police responded with brutality. So we see that. And I thought that the wearing of body cameras by US police, and I hope others around the world, would also lead to improvements. That these improvements have not really come yet, I have to say. And I'm a little disappointed that we haven't, it hasn't led to that. And there are many other ways too. The fact that it is much easier to, to, and and the Arab Spring demonstrations uh, before they descended into terrible wars in many countries, except in Israel, then that, that it, it made it much easier to mobilize peacefully to get people to, to, to show up and it enabled sort of leaders of communities who were protesting for their rights to come together more. And there are many other good things about it, but there are certainly bad things as well. And the surveillance that the Chinese government institutes, the the, the censorship and, and many other forms you mentioned quite rightly, the horrifying um, effects of Facebook uh, with the perhaps genocidal, but otherwise 
mass murder, mass rape, and mass ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya in 2017, which we knew was going to, we thought was going to happen because we could see so much evidence of smaller scale human rights violations that didn't lead to a, a proper reaction on the part of the rest of the world. And it emboldened those who then carried out much, much worse ones in 2017. Yes, and so wrapping it up, what is Berghoff Foundation looking forward to celebrate on the year 2021? I have said that we, I just put it in a letter recently, that, that we're, I, there's a lot that we have to commemorate and to celebrate, but I don't want to be do it as a celebratory thing. Apart from anything else, this is not a year that has that allows much celebration, perhaps other than the change of administration in the United States, there aren't very many other that encouraging, and, and I suppose the arrival of, of vaccinations um, around the world, but it's still, so I, it's not so much a celebration, but we're going to be doing events that mark the um, progress that has been achieved, and, and I don't mean by Berkhoff, although we have certainly contributed a lot in, in many, many spheres, but if I could just say one activity that we will certainly be doing is women on the front lines of peaceful protests. Not just women, but there's one particular stream of work that we have that will focus, because it is quite remarkable in how many places women have been on the front line. Just in the last 18 months, Sudan, uh, Belarus, uh, California, um, the Thailand, uh, Lebanon, and I've missed out a number of countries where there have been demonstrations and women are on the front lines. And it's not just about democratization, although that's many cases, it's also protesting human rights violations. We want to get them together to share lessons that will enable them. Some of them have already been successful. Um, others are in the process still of, of making gains. And then there will be others who will come later. We want to bring them together to, to get the lessons. And that is one particular project that I'm especially excited about, actually. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.